And you have to learn, I think, in life that like humans are social beings and like it's important to be a social engineer as well. In this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Diego Heike. Diego got his bachelor's in mechanical engineering at MIT, his PhD in mechanical engineering at Stanford, and is currently a consultant at Bain & Company. We talk about what it's like growing up in Puerto Rico and how that influenced his path to MIT and his time there. We then get into some discussions surrounding PhDs, as well as microfluidics, the topic of his PhD. Finally, we talk about how and why a mechanical engineer became a consultant. Let's actually just start, what was it like growing up in Puerto Rico? Can you start us off from there? Uh, Yeah, growing up in Puerto Rico. So uh, for people that don't know about Puerto Rico, it's a territory of the United States. Technically, it's a commonwealth. So picture it like you're living in a state that speaks Spanish and is much poorer than the average state in the United States. So uh, it's actually poorer than even the poorest state in the United States. But it still feels like living in the United States, like you're born with a U.S. citizenship. Um, and you're, you're able to travel to the U.S. Uh, just as easily as anyone from Florida or Kansas. Uh, but like, I'm, I'm very proud to be Puerto Rican, and it's a huge part of my identity. And it's, like, it's something that I tell people almost immediately when I meet them. Um, but I, I liked growing up in Puerto Rico. I, like, it feels almost like a, like a gift, you know? And, and maybe you feel this way also being from Trinidad. Like... Uh, it's like a part of your identity, no? And it's like a cool thing to share and uh, you can always feel like a sentimental value. And and I think Americans also feel this, you know, but it's kind of cool when it's also like a, a small place. I don't know. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I think you feel a bit unique also. Um, especially in Puerto Rico, like it's so easy to just make it to come to the U.S. I mean, the thing is in the U.S., and, and I'm sure a lot of like, people know, it's like the educational opportunities, the job opportunities is just something incredible right so if we really want to pursue the careers that we're pursuing we have to think very seriously about uh, leaving puerto rico or leaving trinidad at least for some amount of time so let's dig into that part a bit deeper now so maybe let's like talk about what what you were like in high school were you like smart student uh like average student a below average student, when did you des- t- decide that you wanted to take it seriously? And what was that path like getting to MIT, like applications, etc.? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, depends on the category, the average or below average. <laughs> <laughs> Probably below average in most categories. Okay, no. okay so, you know, I think uh, yeah, I- I've always been a STEM person. I- have you always known that you were interested in STEM? I always Red? knew. I always was good at physics, but everything else I sucked at. So sort of had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. yeah. You kind of, you, you played the hand. You yes. Dealt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think part of that is, is like that for me. I've always known I wanted to be STEM. Like I was always super interested in science in and mathematics. Like I was always super interested in that. My grandfather was an engineer. So I don't know if this is a little weird. You know, my grandfather was an engineer and I think like as a kid, I maybe saw him as like the figurehead of the family or something. Mm. And I saw that he was an engineer and maybe that's why I, I leaned towards uh-huh. them. 
that's like me i've i've come i've fallen into this theory in the past like two uh-huh. years you know i'm like trying to deconstruct why it is that i'm in STEM. did they push you but, with I mean, like uh, always... engineering toys like the legos and these type of things no i mean they didn't push it it was like so self-driven yeah. you know like my dad is actually a professor of philosophy and oh i had no idea studied... i knew he was a professor but i couldn't remember what in <laughs> yeah philosophy yeah. yeah you study philosophy yeah. actually yeah. right <laughs> yeah but the math philosophy he doesn't do that kind of philosophy <laughs> yeah uh, but anyways the point is like my family was like very humanities oriented besides my grandfather i mean for whatever reason i was very motivated by this i think my mom was very supportive and so actually i think maybe i've told you this story when i was in fifth grade so i, I would have been 10 years old my mom took my family to boston for a family vacation just like unrelated to engineering or whatever. But she took me to the MIT museum and I guess maybe she was trying to make a move. I don't know, maybe wanting me to be a, an engineer or something. But and like at that time I said, you know, I want to study robotics and I want to come to MIT and research robotics when I was wow. 10 years old. Because of the museum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually, I saw the museum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Right? Yeah. No, it's got some, it's got some cool stuff. And it made an impression on me. Like, um, like I was blown away. Uh, and I, I think, like, I probably didn't really understand what I was saying, you know, like, deeply what it meant to go to MIT. But my mom and my grandmother, they would hear this, and they would be like, yeah, Diego, do it. You know, because, like, what what parent is not gonna want that for their kid, right? Um, so I, that was like from there, I I was like very set, and I had like, I I didn't know if I wanted to study physics. Like I thought for a while I wanted to study physics actually. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to study bioengineering, uh, if I wanted to study civil mechanical. I like changed a little bit. I was really into robotics in high school, and I did like math competitions at the Puerto Rico level, and. And I think, so the, the most pivotal moment, so if anyone's watching this and they're in 10th grade or 11th grade, I think, and you're considering MIT very seriously, the, the one of the number one things you could do is to consider applying for MITES. And I think I've told you about this program. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard about it. Can you like say what does MITES have? MITES has a meaning, right? Yeah, so MITES stands for uh, MIT... Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> Minority <laughs> introduction to engineering and science. Okay. Uh, MITES. Um, so who can apply for this? Minority introduction to engineering and science. Huh? Who can apply for this? So it's any U.S. citizen, and they give preference for minorities. It's minority introduction. They'll have non-minorities from uh, kind of like disadvantaged backgrounds. But the point is, it's completely free. You don't have to pay for anything in this program except for your ride to Boston. But once you get there, you spend six weeks living. It's a, it's a summer program. You spend six weeks living in an MIT dorm. Uh, it's called Simmons, the dorm. And you basically, Monday to Friday, you you take classes. Like imagine like just like high school level classes, but like, I mean, like very advanced. I mean, you take like calculus, you take physics, you take chemistry, um, and in the weekends you do like Boston stuff, like you go to Martha's Vineyard, you go to Faneuil Hall or, or whatever, but, uh, it's like very, um, shocking in a positive way. So the number one thing, like you, you learn a lot of math and science. Yeah, that's cool. But the number one thing is like, you leave that program 
and you really feel like I'm gonna get into absolutely any university that I, I apply to, and and I, and it's not true. You're not going. I mean, it's, you still have to apply, you know, and that's hard, whatever. But the confidence that it gives you is incredible, and I think that's super important for for applying. And the other thing that you learn a lot is about the process of application. I think, um, and and more in high school, I was like this. Like I always thought content was everything and presentation was nothing you know like how you talk doesn't matter how 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 you write it doesn't matter as much you just got to be smart that's what i thought yeah yeah you just got to know how to do math right yeah <laughs> that's not true and that's so not true with this program, for you know, getting into mit or just in life <laughs> it's I... not true in life but in in in, in mites uh it, it's like uh, like you have to think, I learned that you have to think very seriously about your application, you know, like, and for example, like when you're in high school, when you're a senior, first semester of senior year, when you're writing those college applications, you should treat those college applications as more important than any homework or any test, because really it is more important. And you have to spend hours writing drafts of your essays. You have to send them to people get their comments, incorporate those comments, you know, like you have to like research, like example essays by people who've gotten into MIT. If you have any friends who've gotten into any, any, any university, you want to see like uh, that kind of stuff that they wrote. And nowadays it's so easy to, to learn, right? Like, or to find those resources on the internet. So how did, how did you do you, you did like reach out to teachers, friends who got into MIT or like other universities? And I think the, the number one thing is to, okay, I'll say two things. Number one is to look at examples, and that's straightforward because uh, you just Google this and like on Reddit and other websites, like you'll find excellent examples of some excellent uh, personal essays. Um, and even like uh, just a quick Google search. I mean, really, it, it's not that hard to find. And the second is to get feedback. So it's true. You might not have people. So for some people, that's true. They don't have anyone who's gotten into these kinds of universities. And you just... Look for what you can. And like, for example, even your your high school English teacher, your high school science teacher, all of those people, they could, because honestly, you could even have grammatical, grammatical mistakes. And if all you're doing is re- reading and typing on your, uh, by yourself, it's much harder to catch those things, right? So even dumb, even dumb mistakes can be caught, right? And that's still valuable. Um, and share with multiple people and, and incorporate the feedback, really. Because uh, of course, like, a lot of times you think something is obvious and it's really not, right? Um, so that's that's super important, I think. Uh, and to spend time. So start early. Like start with, like with a month or two in advance or something like that. I think it's very important. Cannot I cannot stress it enough. And that's true for undergrad admissions, right? It's true for when you apply to MITES, for example, if you're considering that. It's true for undergrad admissions. It's true for grad school admissions. It's true for applying for jobs, getting a job. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in high school, I was like the opposite. I mean, I was like, I would wear different colored socks. <laughs> so you can imagine how many friends I had. <laughs> I was like, I want to be quirky, you know, I don't care about presentation. I think it's important. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a skill. So I guess moving into that, it's like, what was, what were your sort of expectations of what MIT would be like and which ones were like true, which ones were false, you know, like how was that experience for you? I think I underestimated the culture shock coming to the U.S. Okay, so I grew up 
I was very, uh, I think I'm very privileged to have gone to the high school that I did. In Puerto Rico, the educational system is very bad. Public schools, I mean, on, it's very sad, but students in Puerto Rican public schools, a lot of them don't make it to MIT, right? So at MIT, we had like 15 Puerto Ricans a year, and they're all from private schools. I was very fortunate to be in one of these private schools. And uh, the way I describe, like, I don't remember learning English, right? So I've always known English my entire life. It's like if I ask you when's the first time you had a sandwich, you yeah. don't remember. It's, like, <laughs> it's always yeah. hard. But anyways, the point is, I've always spoken English. I've always watched American TV, right? Like I watched Comedy Central, Cartoon Network, all of that stuff. So I thought, I'm Puerto Rican. I watch all this American TV. It's just like going to Puerto Rico, but they speak English, and I speak English. Um I had a little, so MI, so MITES was also great because it kind of lets you dip your toes a little bit in college. Like you spend six weeks away, which is not the four-year commitment, right, of going to, to college. Uh, and then you get to, you get a flavor for it. But I think like one of the first things I noticed is like after I spent like days talking English nonstop, I, I was like, oh, wow, it's actually kind of exhausting. I'm always talking in English, right? And I was surprised by that. I, I, I thought that it, that, would, that it wouldn't occur to me. But it happened to me a little bit. And then pretty afterward, I got, I got over it uh, pretty soon, actually. So, so that's a good thing. Culturally, you know, it's hard to describe differences between Puerto Ricans and Americans. I think Puerto Ricans, I mean, we're, we're Latinos. So, like, you tell me to be at some place at 1 p.m., you know, I'll, I'll be there at 1.30 or something like that. And that's, it's not like that in, in the United States. Okay, so another thing is, like, I think Latinos are maybe more relaxed, maybe kind of like Californians in that way. Like, for example, I think one of the things I found very shocking, like, when I first came to the United States is, like, how fast uh, McDonald's were. Like, you would you would go to McDonald's and the, the cashier is like, what do you want? Oh, number five, a large Coke and a fries. Okay, uh, that'll be $5, whatever. And then, you, and then you, you touch the card, right? And, like, or you swipe your own card, right? Or so, yeah, you swipe your own card, right? Exactly. And then it's like, okay, next person. They give you a seat and you wait in line. And, and then like 10 seconds later, someone's shouting, number 27 or, or whatever, right? And, and, you know, in Puerto Rico, it's like, oh, okay, like, how are you doing? Okay, uh, what do you want? Uh, okay, does, uh, do you want the large? Okay, uh, yeah, fine. And then you give the credit card and they swipe it. And it, it, like the whole thing just takes longer. You know, at first when I went to a McDonald's in the U.S., it was like a little bit shocking to me, but I got used to it. <laughs> but it's just like, I think that's like a, like a representation maybe of like the differences in this culture, like how we're slow, uh, slow yeah. paced. Right? It's like a, it's like you're the Big Mac index, but for like uh, culture and <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but besides that, I, I mean... I, I really like uh, living in the States. I mean, I have a lot of friends here. Uh, I, I, I still go to Puerto Rico every year. I go about once a year. Um, so I, 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 have not been, I have not lost all of that Puerto Rican culture, you know. So, like, uh, what about some of the expectations you had about MIT in terms of, like, what the people might be like, what life would be like, um, and did they live up? What were like some that were false? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Okay. I think people uh, were definitely more cool than I expected them to be. <laughs> this I is coming from a, a nerd, right? Like... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. I, okay. 
personally, I believe that everyone at MIT is a nerd. Some people are more nerds than others. Um, I'm, I'm a nerd also, and I think there, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. Um, I expected people to be more nerdy than they were. And it's definitely not true. I mean, it's, I think like, what are some of the myths that I, I, uh, I thought about MIT students that they would be more nerdy and they were less nerdy than I thought. Another thing that surprised me was the fraternity culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, fraternities are just a very big deal at MIT and they have these statistics like, and you probably know some of these, like, uh, uh, people in fraternities and Greek life at MIT, they have higher grades. Uh, they make more money in their lifetime. They donate more money to the university in their lifetime. And I think it, a lot of it is related to um, what we were talking about, presentation. I think, be, okay, I don't want to, it's a very complicated topic. I think part of it is due to presentation. You learn about presentation skills, right? Like being in a fraternity. Because it's like organized yeah. friendship. It's what I would call it. And you have to learn, I think, in life that, like, humans are social beings. And, like, it's important to be a social engineer as well. And so you learn that in fraternities. Yeah. Um, I think people also say, like, the reason that fraternities are doing better, like, all of those statistics, it's only because people who join fraternities are typically richer. And they already had more resources coming into MIT. I see. Which... Maybe true. I I think that's a very complicated subject. In fact, I'm kind of afraid even, or not afraid, but, you know, I think fraternities in the future, they might be looked down upon. And I think it's already starting because people think it's like uh, sexist or it encourages a certain type of behavior. And, you know, I'm not opposed. And I think it's actually a good thing if fraternities include women. Yeah. Um, But I think the, the engineered friendship is it's still really important. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that that was one thing that surprised me about MIT. It's like the the Greek life. It's like pretty big, actually. And and it's a thing I talk to people still, and I tell them I was in a fraternity, and they're like surprised about it because it, like I tell them how big, like I don't, you might have this experience also. They're like, oh, there are fraternities at MIT. Yeah, as people will say. Yeah, right? Pro- um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're surprised. Yeah, and I. I I bet it was maybe even bigger back then. You know, like Richard Feynman, he was in a fraternity. Yeah, I can't remember um, which one, but I remember hearing that, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that that was a very positive experience. I think some things that were exactly like I expected at MIT is um, the availability of classes. Like, I mean, you can just take a class in whatever you want. And I, I think, like, MIT lived up to that in, in it's like what I understood MIT to be. The other thing is uh, research opportunities. I think for undergraduate researchers, I don't know a place that makes it easier than MIT to perform research as an undergrad. It's just so available, right? I don't know if like you have any thoughts about this. Yeah, also. wait, so I'll, I'll, I want to get to this, but let's uh, step, take one mm-hmm. step back. And can you tell us like some of these... Mm-hmm classes that you took you said you can take anything and like sort of um it's funny because at least from in trinidad mit everyone was like oh this is the best engineering school in the world um Mm -hmm. but i was going there to study physics you know not engineering (laughs) and um i don't really you know i feel 
well, basically for for including myself and like a lot of people, what do you think makes MIT the best engineering school in the world? But just keep it for now with regards to classes, and then we'll switch to research. Yeah, as your undergrad experience okay. in classes. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I actually I'll say like even before I say this that I think the re the I don't I don't know if MIT is the best school in the world, but I think one of its strongest components. It definitely is got to be up there, one of the best schools in the world. I think one of the strongest components is the research. I think classes are very good, but I think the research is what makes it stand out. But talking on the topic of classes, I mean, they do offer really strong classes. It's very impressive, the curriculum in mechanical engineering, the, the classes that we take. So for example, I think this one class is like... It, so I want to say the availability of classes, the availability of classes, but also the resources that the classes have. Mm. And for example, I took a class in mass manufacturing and the project, it's a project-based class and the project is to make 50 yo-yos, right? So that's what you do in the class. You take a semester long class and you make 50 yo-yos. But the point is that you learn about like injection molding and manufacturing. It's, and it's like very amazing that you can just sign up for a class right? There's just one semester and you're like mass manufacturing. You know what I mean? This is not an opportunity. These are not resources that are given to a lot of people in a lot of schools in the entire world. I mean, it just speaks to the availability of resources at MIT. Yeah. And you don't have to right? pay for anything extra. It, it's just... You don't have to pay for anything okay. extra. Some classes, you do have to do this. You have like a lab fee. It might be like 50 bucks, 100 bucks. Okay. Uh, Can you get those weights if you ask? It might be very possible, actually. That's a good question. Okay. Probably, Probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's like, uh, but I mean, that's in engineering. I mean, like, it's incredible the resources that you have available to you, right? But then, and it, you can do more than study engineering, right? MIT, they call themselves engineers, but there's, of course, like science, right? Like, you study physics, right? And you can do other sciences. They have like biology, all the major sciences, but also, you can not study any of those things. You can study something outside of STEM, right? So like you took philosophy that was basically math classes, but there's also <laughs> yeah. other philosophy Yeah, they were non-math philosophy you classes. <laughs> <laughs> you can study history. You can study arts. There's actually like a very solid arts department at MIT. You can study architecture. Uh, I actually took a class. I forget the class number, but it was about art in the public sphere. I think that was the name of the class. Uh, and it, we basically just talked about art in public spaces, so like sculptures, performance arts in public spaces. And the class, like they focus on different countries every semester. And I didn't know this when I signed up for the class, but apparently part of that class is that every, is because it's always in the spring, for spring break, you fly to the country that you're studying. And you spend a week there. And this is completely free. There's actually no fee. Oh, my God. It's completely free. Yeah. There's no fee associated to that that part of the class. So I got to go to Brazil. It was incredible. Damn. So, like, they even pay for your Brazilian visa process. So you have to go and get the visa. They pay for that. They pay for the transportation. They pay for the uh, hotel. I think they paid for the food. Um, and it's just, like... I mean, this is like an unbelievable opportunity, right? Uh, that you're able to do this. Um, so MIT is just like much more than engineering and science, really. I think that that surprises a lot of people. Yeah, it, it surprised me. Yeah, I, as all those things you're talking about remind me about music and uh, 
and acting mm-hmm. and these things too, you know. Yeah. It was quite a Yeah, you know, yeah. like uh-huh. It was just like uh, mind blowing how much goes on. Yeah. It really is. Um I think like maybe that's uh one of my things about MIT. I wish I would have taken more classes, uh actually. Yeah. Same. And uh and in, in more diverse things. Um this is like something I've been thinking about recently is like odds are that if okay, so let's say you study engineering, whatever, you study science, whatever. Okay, so let's stick to engineering because it's a little bit more what I know. But let's say you study engineering, mechanical engineering, bioengineering, whatever, and you get a job in industry, presumably also a role that requires engineering. Odds are that you're going to be working on something that you did not dive deeply into in undergrad. Do you see what I mean? Like, for example, like if you graduate and you get a job at Boeing doing uh structural analysis of wings or something like that like odds are that you didn't take like six six semesters worth of classes of like structural mechanics and simulations you know yeah, what i mean yeah uh, like they, they it's, it's very just gonna hard. learn it on the mm-hmm. job anyways so yeah, exactly that's yeah. that's my point is that a lot of the stuff that you're gonna do you're gonna learn on the job anyways yeah. so I almost wish that I would have taken uh, less classes. I took a lot of classes in design and manufacturing. I kind of wish I would have done less of that and more like just one class in computer science mm-hmm. or and another just like one class in bioengineering and uh, just one class in something else, you know, just like, get a broader because a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah exactly. And you, even one semester. Yeah. It, it really sets you up because you, now you understand like what is the language yeah. of that field to some degree. Yeah. And so if you want to learn more about it, you can learn more about it. But it's just like seeing the world. You know? Right. And at MIT, where there are so many classes to choose from, you don't have to pay more money to take more classes, right? And most classes, they don't have like uh, uh, debilitating capacity limits, you know? So like there are very few classes that are oversubscribed, Right. So you can pretty much do whatever you want. And also at MIT, you actually don't need that many classes for your major, right? So you actually, a lot of people don't declare until their second, uh, second, most people don't declare until their second year. A lot of people switch majors. I mean, we have friends, right? They switched major like their third year and they would still graduate on time, right? So I, I think that's one regret. I wish I would have taken more broad classes. I don't know if you agree also. No, I, I have that struggle and that... Um... Like, I knew that I wanted to do grad school in physics. And mm-hmm. so then I'm trying to set myself up to do well in grad school because I think I think doing well in, uh, like, especially in, like, theoretical physics, being exposed to these things sooner helps, you know, because then in mm-hmm. grad school you get exposed to it again and then you get better. And, you know, like, your job really depends yeah. on your ability to do the class material, <laughs> Um, so right, yeah, exactly. Yes, I think it, it's got to vary uh, for sure. It's got to vary a lot. Yeah, um, between fields, between engineering and and science, is two very different things. Mm. But I guess if you wanted, if I knew I wanted to get a job right after, then then I would definitely have done broader things. Yeah, but sort of I knew that okay. I wanted to go into the PhD, so I was like more narrow in my pursuits. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. It's a different uh kind of human being <laughs> pursuing the PhD. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get into that with you soon, but um 
let's yeah so let's go back to the research so i think not everyone listening to this fully understands what it is to do research right mm-hmm. I, did you know what it yeah. meant to do research when you were in high school uh absolutely not yeah, yeah so for sure you i mean i think describe mm-hmm. like tell someone <laughs> what is research and how how did you get engaged with it in undergrad and yeah yeah I, I can only speak from the perspective of an engineer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But and I and as a PhD and I will also say, engineer, you know, and as yeah. a PhD, and I'll say a lot of people, even at the PhD level, even fourth year, fifth year PhDs, they still don't understand what research is. Mm-hmm. I think I don't fully understand what research is. It's just a very complicated thing. Um, but I think the the simplest way to think about it is to just think about it as a job. And your job is to do something that no one else has ever done before. And you get bonus points if it's very interesting also, right? So that's kind of interesting. I mean, it doesn't have to be super interesting what you're doing in research. And it could still be research. But you want to try to do something that's interesting either because it helps people or because it's it's very good explanation of something that's occurring. Um but whatever, yeah. So think about it as a job where your job is to do something that no one else has done before. And this sounds very scary, I think, right? Like when you phrase it that way, it's like... Yeah. Uh, so, so what you try to do is you say, okay, I'm going to focus in on something that's like very specific. Uh, so for example, in undergrad, I was in undergraduate, I was doing this research. Uh, if you've ever heard about the MIT robotic cheetah... Yeah. Oh, uh, I think I've seen the Boston Dynamics one. Is 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 it the same? Okay, that's the. I think it's not. Uh, it, but it's a similar concept. It's like uh, bio biomimetic robotics is what they call it. Like when they're mimicking biology, like real animals. You know, this is like joke about like the last thing a lot of us are going to see in our lifetimes is one of those Boston Dynamics robots with a machine gun <laughs> mounted to its back. Oh, my God. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's terrifying. That's the way the world ends. Yeah. <laughs> no. But, okay. So, uh, Boston Dynamics also... Okay. And so, this... Okay. So, I think research is, yeah, your job um, doing something that no one else has done before. Uh, it gets interesting also with engineering because... And, and uh, engineering is not science, yeah, okay. I was gonna. And I was gonna ask. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. what's it like? It's how do you see yourself area. different from a scientist? You know, because with with uh-huh. I I think with my field, I would say it's sort of like uh, as you were saying, like doing something someone hasn't done before. W- once you're mm-hmm. constrained to the scientific method, though. Okay, so that's a different question about like uh, engineering versus science. Is super gray area. I'm still trying to answer the question for myself. Okay, <laughs> uh, but. I'll, I'll circle back to it. Okay, so talking about research, yeah. Um, in engineering, uh, research, typically, the way people think about it is just like, I want to build something that no one else has built before. So for the, for the robotic cheetah, it's like, well, no one else has ever built a robotic cheetah. So if we built a robotic cheetah, we're doing something that no one else has done before. And um, it's interesting because now you have this robot that has very good ability to move around in maybe uneven terrains or stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, that's another one of my regrets. I think in, 
at MIT, I just really did not take research seriously. I think I was putting in maybe about four hours a week, three hours a week. Yeah. And really, I mean, I think you really need to be in a PhD for at least two or three years. I mean, I don't know. Some people definitely can understand it faster yeah. than I do. But I think you have to be doing research for a while, for a long time before you really understand uh, what it's like to do research. Um, I agree, yeah. At least right? that's my I mean, experience also. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Not to say that um, there weren't those anomalies in MIT who, those undergrads who would like contribute to like scientific papers in like big ways, you know. But, for sure. But the yeah, average person, sure. <laughs> we got to wait till a couple of years in the PhD. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so then circle, okay. So then research, it's like you're doing this thing that no one else has done before, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then what's interesting about research is that the way you prove this, that you did something no one else has done before, is you write what are called papers, right? Like scientific papers. Yeah. And these are, it's a big deal. A paper is a big deal. It's its almost like getting a patent, right? It's like, hey, look, I did this and look at the proof. And uh, papers usually have multiple authors. So these are the people that worked on the paper. And the first author is a special a term used on one of the authors that did the most significant amount of work and getting a first author publication for people that don't know this is basically the this is the currency of academia right uh, this is like i think it's kind of it's it's not sad i think it's like maybe misguided a little bit i think academia could be better but I also understand why we talk about papers the way that we do. It's just like, that's the goal. It's like, that's how people think about their research. Like, the way they ask themselves, like, am I a good researcher? The answer to the question is, uh, how, or you ask these questions. You ask, how many papers have you published? What journals are those papers getting published in? And, like, uh, journals are like magazines that publish collections of papers. And then also, how many people are looking at my paper and and citing which is like when someone references your paper in another paper yeah and so people that don't know like uh to get a to get a phd it typically means that you have to write about one to three papers one to three first author papers and it depends on the field some people publish more some less yeah you can get a phd without a paper right? yeah i heard, I heard in math that's um, the case pretty often yeah oh yeah Interesting. Uh, and, and some fields, it's like they publish a lot of like they go to conferences and they'll have like 10 conference papers, which are like shorter papers. And, and that's also considered like normal in their field. Uh, but that's really what it boils down to. Like uh, like research is like publishing papers. That is kind of what it boils down to doing things that no one has ever done before, writing about it in like 10 pages and sharing that. That's like you did research. Um, uh, you know, like, uh, going back to this question about engineering versus science, you brought up a really interesting point about the scientific method. So I think engineering and science are two different things. And engineering is actually older than science. Engineering came before science. And I think like the example I like to use is like the pyramids, uh-huh. you know, building the, the pyramids at, at Egypt, you know, in Egypt. Yeah. Uh, that's a huge engineering challenge, yeah. right? 
and we were able to do it. Uh, so we definitely had engineers back then. Yeah. Um, you ever heard this joke like, how do you tell uh, uh, like a nerdy engineer apart from uh, like a more social and cool engineer? I've heard this from mathematicians, and it's like the other one, like one of them looks at your shoes, not their shoes. So I don't know if that's the <laughs> <laughs> is that the same? <laughs> okay, <laughs> we got the same yeah. joke. We got the same joke exactly. <laughs> so I bet those uh, engineers in Egypt were probably also staring at, at, at their, their own, own shoes. shoes. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> maybe I don't know. Yeah. But okay, so that's engineering for sure. And then science is a different thing. I think of science as as a knowledge and knowledge is abstract knowledge is not in language knowledge is not in numbers it's not in equations either it's it's an abstract thing uh that exists in somewhere i don't know uh we can only in, uh, verbalize our knowledge right whatever but science is knowledge that we have collected using the scientific method and that's all that science is it's and that's a consequence of the enlightenment so this is like 1700s uh we're talking about like 1600s or whatever this is uh it's science is a is a fairly new thing uh it's much newer than engineering i see so that's i don't know if you think about science and engineering differently yeah i guess when i think about research and i think Mm -hmm. about it for scientists i sometimes i like to draw uh like a venn diagram oh i just like Mm -hmm. a chart and i'll say like this is all of human knowledge and the job of a researcher in science is to sort of sit on that boundary of human knowledge and not like the unknown and try to increase that uh, sort of space of human knowledge. Mm, yeah. To add on to it. Yeah. That, that's how I view that's research in science. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that connects really well actually with the idea of like research as doing something that no one else has done before. Yeah. It, it's like discovering something that no one has discovered before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think I use the word do because I come from this like engineering background. Yeah. We like, we do things. We don't learn things yeah. in engineering. That's not true. We also learn things. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So I also, um, I guess this, this has a follow up question in that if you're like building and doing things that someone hasn't done before, how is this different from mm-hmm. when like a company, for example, like uh, you said Boeing, like what if like Boeing or like SpaceX, you know? How is this different from when yeah. they do things that people haven't done before? What's the distinction between research? Is there a distinction between those two doing new things that people haven't done before? That's a great question. And uh, I think the answer is that I think you can consider those structural engineers at Boeing to be doing research. Okay. A lot of it has to do with uh, the degree of advancement, I think. Um, okay. So, okay. So first of all, there are people doing research at many tech companies, right? Yeah. So research is a part of the way that these industries or sorry, these companies can stay alive even, right? It's a big part of yeah. that. Um, I think uh, there's a distinction between industrial research and academic research because industrial research tends to be more short-sighted. It's more uh, looking at the end result and it's more profit-driven, right? Yeah. So like the reason that they're analyzing, right, those wings is maybe for uh, to, to think about maybe can we switch to a cheaper material and still be just as safe? So it, it's still motivated by profit in the end. Yeah. Whereas more like academic research, it it usually tends. Oh, and then the other thing is the engineer at Boeing is more thinking about like this is change that we're going to implement in the next five years, 
and it, it, some companies will do research like further into the future, but it's usually shorter pace. Yeah. And then academics are more like, you know, you could honestly be working on something that's not going to be in use for 20 years. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, yeah. it's just the scope of things. And, and you try to really push the, push the envelope with, uh, academic research. And usually because the consequences are not as severe if you fail, uh, as versus like a company. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Capitalism is brutal and yeah. the company won't survive, right? So, uh, can you give us an insight and then into like what your research is at Stanford? Because you do, you, it's microfluidics, right? Microfluidics, yeah, yeah exactly. So like what is it, what is um, microfluidics for at the high schooler level? <laughs> How do you explain it to a high schooler yeah. um, asking for a friend? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like, okay, so microfluidics, it's it's like a very hard thing to explain to people at parties, <laughs> uh, and you know, like I don't know of any kid in high school or elementary school is like growing up and saying like, <laughs> I want to study microfluidics, yeah. you know. And my friend made a joke the other day, like I don't know any PhD student <laughs> that is going around saying they want to study <laughs> microfluidics, <laughs> but that's not true. I mean, like. Uh, Okay, here's okay. I'll, okay, so I'll step back a little bit. So I think the okay in the in the most like uh, easy words to describe, it's fluid mechanics. It's like what you said in the intro. It's fluid mechanics at the microscopic scale. So fluids, uh, you know, like liquids and gases, uh, are just states of matter that behave in a certain way. And in flu- in microfluidics, we describe the behavior of those fluids at Again, microscopic scale. So, like, if you think about a strand of hair, right? A strand of hair has a diameter. If you if you had a strand of hair in, in mm-hmm. your hand, and you looked at the diameter of the hair, that's about a hundred and fifty microns. Oh, wait, what's a micron? And so that's <laughs> right. So you know what a meter is, right? So take one one thousandth of a meter, and that's what we call a millimeter in the United States. Uh, I think people haven't heard of millimeters, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like uh, two point fifty four centimeters is in inches, or okay, or whatever. But okay, <laughs> you have a meter. Take one thousandth of a of a of a meter, and that's a millimeter. And a lot of people have an idea of what a millimeter is. And then take a thousandth of that, and you get a unit of measurement, which is called a micron. Okay. And about one hundred and fifty of those microns uh, make up the diameter of a hair. Okay. And the other way to think about it is like. Um, a, uh, a dot or a period at the end of a sentence in like standard 12 point font size, whatever yeah. is about 50 to a hundred microns. Okay. Uh, so it's pretty small, but you know, you can still see it yeah. with your eye, of course. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, that's what I do. I study the behavior of fluids at the scale of a hair. Okay. So another way to think about it, I'll do one last analogy is, you know, you have pipes in your, in your house, right? Like maybe connect your faucet, like to the drain or whatever. Yeah. So imagine you took that pipe and it's maybe like the size of like your hand or something like that in diameter. Yeah. And this light is too bright. Yeah. And start shrinking that and shrink it and shrink it and shrink it. Yeah. Until it's the diameter of your hair and then try pushing water through that. And that's what I study. Okay. So hopefully that, that paints a picture. It's, it's a pretty, uh, it used to be pretty niche and I can even talk about the history about this stuff. Uh, but in more practical terms, Okay. Try to think about any situation where handling a small amount of liquid, like water, yeah, is interesting. Is and what is 
is interesting. Okay. Can you think of can you think of a situation where that's interesting? Uh like I think you, like okay, capillary action, shower, right? Oh. <laughs> huh? I was capillary thinking of capillary action in plants, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So that's that's a good example. Um and I think the example I like to use is more re- like like relevant at the times is like coronavirus, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, do- okay, so talk a bit more about mm-hmm. that, yeah. <laughs> okay, so think about this. When you go, you take a nasal pharyngeal swab. Yeah. So that's like the swab they put into your nose. Yeah. Okay. Inside of your nose, uh, if you're sick with COVID, you have coronaviruses inside of your nose. And those coronaviruses, they contain uh, RNA. So uh, it's like the nucleic acid, the genetic information for the virus. Mm -hmm. They have RNA. So the idea is when they put that swab in your nose, they're rubbing it around in there and they're picking up RNA that belongs to the coronavirus if you're sick with COVID, right? Yeah. So now you have a swab in your hand. It's like a Q-tip, and it's got coronavirus RNA on it. And how the hell are you supposed to figure out if there's RNA on it or not? Well, what people typically do is they take a small volume of water. So the amount of water that we're talking about is about a milliliter. So think about a one-liter bottle of water and try to think of one one one-thousandth of that. Yeah. In fact, it's like a tube, maybe like this diameter and maybe like this tall. Maybe that's about a milliliter of water. Like in the cap of a water bottle or something. Like if you were to take the cap yeah, off. Yeah, that's a great example. Okay. Yeah, that's a great example. Okay. So that's about a milliliter. Okay. okay. So you take that amount of water and you take the nasopharyngeal swab. Yeah. And you put it in there. Okay. And what happens is the RNA dissolves. It dissolves into the water, right? Okay. And what you end up with is a little tube of water. Uh, that has, if you're sick with COVID, coronavirus RNA, coronavirus nucleic acid in there. Yeah. And that's a, that's a small volume of water. Yeah. And you want to be able to tell if the person is sick with COVID or not. And so here's where like microfluidics can step in. And actually I, I can talk about like, I'll just talk maybe like a two minute, I'll give a two minute explanation of my research. Yeah. I think this, it's like, this is pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. This is like uh, the thing to talk about it, like um, At parties. cocktail parties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll always say the story, uh-huh. and people people tell me like, Diego, who invited you? Like, how did you get? It? It's okay. I invited you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So you have this little pool of water. It's got the coronavirus RNA, right? And uh, you know we have methods to detect that nucleic acid. Uh, that are not microfluidic in nature. Um, so I'll say this, like microfluidics is like you're handling very small amounts of liquid. Uh, we don't say that anything that involves handling small amounts of liquid is microfluidics. It's typically like more complicated handling. So like, for example, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever heard this word pipette? Yeah. Well, okay, I just so know, pipette, like I know about it as the device you use in like a chemistry lab, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And yeah. for people that don't know, basically think about it as like a, a very sophisticated straw that you can put into solutions and withdraw like known amounts of liquid. So we don't call pipetting microfluidics, but we call, for example, microscopic scale pipes, we call that microfluidics. So anyways, whatever, stepping back, I'll tell you that what we do in my lab and is, uh, we'll, we can explain why we do this later, whatever. We take the small amount of water right? It's got the coronavirus RNA. 
and we put it inside this thing that we call a microfluidic chip. And in our case, the microfluidic chip, think about it as a block of glass, just a block of glass, like a microscope slide. That's a block of glass, right? Yeah. A microscope slide with a really tiny pipe inside. So it's just like the pipe in your house, right? It's just like a, a hole, a cylindrical hole. That's all it is. It's a pipe. It just happens to be on the size, about the size. It's a microscopic scale. Mm -hmm. So it's about a pipe, it's a pipe about the diameter of a, of a hair, right? Okay. So we have a piece of glass with a hole in there about the size of a human hair. And we have this volume of liquid. And uh, we do this technique where we take the nasal pharyngeal swab and we put it at the entrance of the pipe. Okay. Right? Yeah. And now the pipe is flooded um, with water, right? And I'll get, okay, I'm, this is going to get a little bit hairy, like the description, <laughs> uh -huh. but uh, the people at home, they can just maybe like skip ahead if they don't want to hear this. Uh -huh. Okay. It's not just, it's not true that it's just the RNA that's floating around in the water. Yeah. There's actually other things. There's like, uh, mucus, yeah, uh, right from from your nose. There's proteins, uh, just like proteins are these molecules inside of your body that your body produces them. Other organisms also produce them, and they're also floating around uh, next to the nucleic acid. And it turns out that the detection of the nucleic acid of the RNA is very difficult if you have all of these other molecules. So what we do is we have this pool of water. We apply an electric field, which is basically like taking uh, both ends of a battery connected them to the water and we actually induce a current but you know most people when they think about currents it's like electronic currents it's transfer of electrons yeah but in this case we're talking about an ionic current okay it's a current of ions okay so these are charged molecules yeah and it turns out that the nucleic acid has a negative charge okay and under that electric field it actually starts moving it's it's pretty cool. Okay, so uh, this is like electrolysis, like when you learn how to like copper plate something. You're talking about like, is it it's, like that? It's, uh, electrolysis actually is a side effect of what we do, but it's oh. not what we're trying to do. Okay, okay. Uh, I think uh, if you've ever heard the term capillary electrophoresis, no. it's very similar to what we're doing. <laughs> okay. We do this thing called isotacophoresis. Okay, but you know, really, just uh, this is the most important takeaway. Yeah, is yeah. That the ions they they water. behave as ions and then they move in the electric field. That's what you're saying. Yeah. yeah okay. or, or even even simpler than that, it's just like pool of water, yeah. electric field, and the DNA actually, or the RNA, yeah. actually moves under the electric field. It's, it's pretty cool. And okay. uh, that's an example of a, of a microfluidic assay. So, okay. Oh, okay. so compartmentalizing, all, compartmentalizing all of that and pushing it aside, microfluidics, a lot of it is like biological applications. Uh, it's a lot of like what people call assay design. So... Uh, the most uh, sold microfluidic device in the world are pregnancy test kits. Oh, interesting. Uh, that's, that's like what people commonly say. Because if you think about it, it's only using a little bit of urine and it's screening for the presence of certain proteins in the urine. And the, the, the performance of that device is driven by what you were talking about, capillary action, right? Because it's like paper that's getting wet. Okay, okay. Uh, the, other, the other famous microfluidic device is uh, printers, inkjet printers. 
because if you think about it, you're dispensing microliter volumes of really small volumes of liquid ink onto paper. Yeah. And that's also a microfluidic problem. I see, I see. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess this, this uh, makes me wonder what made you decide to go into microfluidics for your PhD? Yeah. Did you know uh, that going from, from MIT to Stanford that you wanted to yeah. do microfluidics? Absolutely not. You know, um, what did you want to do then? Oh, I wanted to do robotics, actually. Wow. Um, that's a huge change. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a huge change. I mean, how did that happen? <laughs> I changed. Huh? How did that happen? Okay, so I think uh, the first thing I learned, um, okay, in my last year of undergrad at MIT, I was doing the robotics research. Um, and I also did this one month long uh, research project where we developing a hydrogen based uh, engine, a hydrogen based internal combustion engine. Um, the point is the hydrogen based internal combustion engine, it sounds very complicated and very different from robotics. But, you know, doing research is typically it's harder and it's easier than you think. And what I mean by that is like, especially at places like MIT, Stanford, you know, a lot of other universities, uh, professors, they're really smart people and they really know how to break down the problem. And what I'm trying to say is that uh, I learned that last year of MIT that you should never be intimidated by a research projects, by the name of the research project, what skills it involves, because most of the time you can learn those skills on the job. Yeah. And the other thing I learned is that uh, not everything you do has to define you, right? So like if you do a robotics research, that's not who you are. Yeah. You're not a robotics researcher. If you do microfluidics research, you're not a microfluidics researcher if you don't want to be. That yeah. could be just something that you are doing in that moment, right? Yeah. And I think that uh, being an engineer is being an engineer and, you know, you should be able to work on different projects. So what I mean to say with all of that is I left MIT. I thought I was really into robotics. I learned that I could take up other projects and I learned that I could just try something new. And that's when I first came into Stanford, I think I dropped the robotics thing pretty quickly and very quickly. My goal was, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to do something different. That's what I want to do. Um, was there like some I, I experience you a... that you had that pushed you away from robotics? Not really. I don't, I, in fact, I wouldn't even say I, I got pushed away from robotics. Yeah. I think I was just more pushed into other things. Okay. I was like, you know, robotics is cool. I have nothing against it. Yeah. Maybe I go back again, <laughs> right? And do it. Yeah. But I just want to do something different right now. Yeah. And so I started looking at other other things. I, I started like thinking on a more fundamental level about the kind of research I wanted to do. Okay. Like I want to do energy generation or I want to uh, solve the water crisis or I want to study global warming. You know, just like yeah. really broad jokes topic, you know, and like just pick anything that sounds interesting to you. That's the way I, I was thinking about it, right? Okay. And uh, And this is actually something we can talk about. It's like, I think uh, mechanical engineering versus electrical engineering versus aeroastro engineering versus bioengineering. Yeah. 
all of that stuff is like dissolving. Um, you mean the boundaries the, between the boundaries them. are dissolving? Yeah, research is more it's very multidisciplinary. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, so my my goal was to just do something new. That's all I cared about, and I just happened to end up in this microfluidics lab because I wanted to work on water desalination and this professor was investigating water desalination and um, and I I was only going to do it for a quarter, which is like a half a semester. I was only going to do it for that long. But I actually liked the lab environment so much that I, I decided to stay for my PhD. And that's how I ended up in microfluidics for these five years. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I mean... My, my, my thing is like, that I really try to emphasize is it's not a definition of who you are. You can do a PhD in microfluidics and then go and do something else, you know, yeah. after that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before we leave microfluidics, I'm curious, like, mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a, a bit where the field is going? Like, cause you talked about the difference within, well, at least in, in academia. So mm -hmm. you said industry sort of thinks on smaller timescales trying to solve smaller yeah. timescale problems like what are the mm -hmm. problems that academia microfluidics are trying to solve right now yeah uh that's an interesting question i i, I have thoughts about this okay so you know like microfluidics so even the word fluidics um it's like, have you ever even heard that word before, fluidics? No. Because people talk about fluid dynamics and yeah. fluid mechanics, yeah. but they don't talk about fluidics. Yeah. Uh, and I think the origin of this term is like, uh, the analogy is electronics. So electronics is based on like uh, movements of electrons, right? Yeah. Uh, but fluidics is based on movement of fluids. And fluidics really got started... As far as I know, like around the time of the World War II. So what happened was electromagnetic pulses were being uh, like developed. And so this is like a, it's like a bomb that you can use to disable electronic communications. But what you cannot disable with an electromagnetic pulse are fluidic communications. What are so fluidic if you can believe communications? This, it's developing computers that run on water movement. Wow. Okay. So think about that. Like, yeah. you know, like, like what's the transistor is... fluids? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, and you can develop those actually. People okay. develop pumps, like one way valves, all that stuff. Yeah. You can develop, like people have built calculators uh, with fluids moving around in pipes. Wow. You know? Okay. It's like, hugely uh like uh impractical right because yeah. then you have to be handling you can't shrink it yeah. right so like i'm not gonna have a smartphone that runs on on fluids exactly <laughs> exactly uh so uh microfluidics was like try to resolve that by having smaller scale right pipes right yeah uh that's how the kind of like the field got started but okay. it pretty quickly uh changed into more of these like biological problems uh a lot of microfluidics lately has turned into what's called point of care diagnostics, which is basically like, I have a box that you can put a little bit of liquid inside of it. And I'm going to tell you in five minutes, whether you have this disease, whether you're pregnant versus where you're whatever. Uh, that's a big part of microfluidics right now. And another big part is like these things people call organ on a chip. I haven't heard of so, this. So 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you an example. People can build like tiny microfluidic uh, channels where they can line one side of the channel with uh, uh, cells and they can, with some type of cell. Yeah. And they can line another part of the channel with another type of cell. And people have done this, like, for example, to study like um, exchanges of molecules between uh, a mother and her baby. So they'll put oh, like placental yeah. uh, lining cells. Yeah. And they can say like, oh, if I flow caffeine through the mother channel, I picked up a little bit of caffeine inside of the placental channel, which means that when a mom drinks, I mean, it could mean that when a mom drinks caffeine, she might be giving a little bit of caffeine to the baby or something like that. Yeah. You say like, oh, so you can't do it. It's dangerous, whatever. Right. So that, that's called like organ on a chip. That's like, I think the biological applications is really what's happening uh, with fluid mechanics Sorry, with microfluidics right now. But there's something happening right now in microfluidics that people are saying it's uh, it's it's days as a research project are kind of coming to an end. It's kind of interesting to even... I mean, before I started in science, I thought it didn't make any sense to say, like, you can discover all of the problems in a field. You know what I mean? Yeah. So people say, like, uh, all of the interesting problems have been solved, right? Like, yeah, all I the low-hanging fruit. Wait, is is it different from like all the low-hanging fruit are picked and you know, like, because we still can't solve Navier Stokes, right? But like, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know how many people have just given up and moved on. <laughs> so I think it's it's different, but it, it's yeah. an interesting question also about the low-hanging fruit. So like, low-hanging fruit is like problems that are really easy, yeah, right? And it's like when something is new. A lot of there's sometimes there's a lot of easy problems that you can solve in the, like in a couple of years and you get published and you're gonna get a lot of citations on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think that more like interesting problems is like more like things that people care about. You know, okay. like I think you can always do research. Uh, you can always ask more questions. You're, you're, there's always something new to find out. But the point is like, at what point do people even care about it? You know, like uh, one way to think about it is like you know, let's say you're able to get a pregnancy test. Um, you get an answer in five minutes and then someone says, oh, I developed one that gives you an answer in one second. And that might be pretty interesting, right? Yeah. But if someone then goes and says, hey, I can give you one, it gives you an answer in one-tenth of a second. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like, you really don't care yeah. right? at that point, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's not as interesting, right? So anyways, whatever. People are saying that microfluidics is a middle-aged field interesting in terms of how many problems that are left to be solved and they think uh, a lot of microfluidics people think that it's going to transition from a research field into an industrial field and okay what it means is like microfluidics is now a tool you know what i mean yeah it's like something that we use that we'll use every day especially biologists will use every day but they're not going to be really like microfluidics researchers. It'll be more done by like companies and stuff like that. Yeah. Can you give us an Which example is- of the companies that will be taking this up or that are doing it already? Yeah. So um, right now, the biggest companies that are doing microfluidics. So I'll give you the example of the inkjet printers, right? Yeah. The so That's like HP. Tests. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Pregnancy yeah. tests. Okay. Yeah. So pregnancy tests. And then more increasingly now, it's like uh, microfluidic assays that are being sold. Like, so for example, um, there's this company, it's called Illumina. Illumina 
makes microfluidic chips that are used for genetic sequencing. Okay. So the idea is like uh, you take uh, a human sample and you want to know the the DNA of that human. Like a spit right? sample. A spit sample. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you want to know the DNA of that. Like, for example, like uh, 23andMe, yeah. right? So yeah. like you have someone's saliva, you want to find out what their DNA, what their uh their genome is whatever mm-hmm. you need to process that small amount of saliva and one way that is done is inside of a microfluidic chip so again it's a glass block with tiny channels inside yeah and these channels they have these like uh interesting design that let lets a company like illumina uh determine uh your genome and using other technologies also but that's an example of like a microfluidic uh device i see that's like an industry right yeah and then there's this other big company it's called like genentech uh, it's based in Bay Area, and so what they're doing is they're making they're selling to researchers devices for organ on a chip. Uh, so like you can do organ on a chip because like I mean that's a whole other thing. I mean you can have companies that sell to researchers, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not just to consumers or to other companies, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think I think that's what's going to happen in microfluidics. Like microfluidics, a lot of people have done research in it. It's going to boil down to a couple of killer applications where microfluidics just makes a huge difference. And I think that those companies are going to be uh, pretty profitable. I think uh, that's, that's really what we're going to see in microfluidics. And as a normal non-engineer, you're most likely going to interact with microfluidics in the biological space, even if you don't know it, right? Especially in these point-of-care diagnostics. Yeah, I see, I see. So look out for microfluidics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Diego, I remember in, in undergrad, um, there was sort of a point when you you said you wanted to become a professor. Was it that that made you decide to do a PhD or did you want to do a PhD before? And yeah, can you like tell us what made you decide to do a PhD and what exactly it means to do a PhD? Yeah, so I'll first answer... Uh, why I wanted to do a PhD, you're right. I I was an undergrad. I wanted to be a professor. And if you want to be a professor, you need a PhD. And so I thought, I'm going to get the PhD and then become a professor. That's reason enough for me to pursue it. Yeah. Now, Be- wait, mean- before that, what did you want to do then? Because you decided you wanted to do a PhD like in your junior year or senior year? I can't remember. Yeah, my junior year. Before that, okay. I was just considering a job as an engineer in industry. So just like work in manufacturing at Apple, maybe like uh, Boeing or something, you know, like a pretty standard uh, engineer, mechanical engineer job. Uh, Right. You were at Apple one summer, right? I forgot. I did. Yeah. I worked on manufacturing. So I worked on like, do you have a MacBook Pro? It's like... No, but I'm thinking of getting one. (laughs) New ones look really nice. Uh, So it's like, if you have your laptop here, flip it over backwards, the plate of aluminum that's keeping the battery inside, that's what I was working on. That was my baby. Um, okay, so when it's overheating and on my lap, that's, I can blame you. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, that was not on the design. Uh, okay, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's like an undergrad. That's I I started thinking I want to be a professor. I'm gonna finish undergrad. I'm gonna get a PhD, and then I'm gonna become a professor. And then I strayed away from that, and I said, you know, I'm just gonna be an engineer at Apple or something similar along those lines. But then I circled back and I said, you know what? I want to be a professor. And I wanted to be a professor because I was really motivated. I thought research sounded very attractive uh, to me. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I started the PhD. 
Now, what is a PhD? <laughs> what is a PhD? So that's a good question. And I think uh, you don't know what it is until you're a couple of years in. I would summarize it like this. You have to do research. Your job, you, it's like getting a job. And your job is to do research, which is what we talked about, which is um, just doing something that no one else has done before or learning something that no one else has ever learned before Yeah, and publishing it. So that's the PhD. You get a job, you're doing research, doing things no one has ever done before, and you do it for about five years, sometimes more, sometimes a little bit less. And hopefully after these five, six years, you write one to three papers, you publish those papers, and then you give a presentation about them, and then you get a, a diploma that says you have a PhD. Yeah, I, I, that's. I think that's the simplest way to think about it. Yeah. Sometimes you take classes. Sometimes you don't take classes. Uh, but I think all of those are are minor things. Yeah, I think just Is to, that a fair assessment. You think? Yeah, I think uh, to add to that, it's sort of convincing, mm -hmm. like the university who like who awards you the PhD is that you're like uh, the world's expert in this thing because you did yeah. something new that no one did before so like by definition yeah. you're the expert but that you're mm -hmm. like a exactly. good expert you know <laughs> so mm -hmm. exactly yeah i mean you want to publish good research right and it yeah. has to stand up like to scrutiny yeah when you give this defense it's like, like or this presentation actually people call it a defense right because you're defending the work that you've done right um I think that's the simplest way to think about it. And then uh, from a practical perspective, like what does it feel like? I would say it feels like being a college student. It feels like a hybrid between being a college student and between having a job. I, I think, I don't know if you also agree with that because you get like the parts about like being a college student is like being in the university, being surrounded with people your age, you know, young people. Yeah. Uh, working at this uh, university, like, all these parts about like student culture and student life that's still present. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In, in some ways, even more so, but then it's also kind of like a job because you're actually getting paid, uh, at Stanford, for example, you can't pay your way to a PhD. Like some people pay for undergraduate degree, right? You yeah. don't pay for a PhD. In fact, you have to get paid, uh, to finish a PhD at Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, it's like an interesting job also because it's a lot. I think it's, I think it's weird. Sometimes it feels like less pressure uh, than a real job in the sense like you don't need to actually build anything that makes any money. Right. Yeah. But you do have to publish and, th and that's, that's pretty hard. I mean, yeah. They publish or perish. Like, a, yeah. Yeah. And from just like a conceptual level, like doing something that no one else, no one else has ever done before. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough to understand what has been done, right? Yeah. Like to be actually up to date on what people have done in your field is is a lot harder than it, it sounds. Yeah. yeah. To, to people think. Yeah. It, it, mm -hmm. One difference with the undergrad experience for me in terms of like uh, doing like theoretical physics is that, you know, where, and I think this applies to you also, is that mm -hmm. all the problems you do, everything you do in undergrad basically in the curriculum, they know mm -hmm. it can be solved. They're giving you problems that you know yeah. can be solved, but in research mm -hmm. you're you're doing things that you don't know if it can be solved or if you have the skills to solve them. You know, if it's within your reach yeah. for five years, if like 
sure. human knowledge is, has like the tools right now to solve the problem, you know? So it's yeah, very no. scary. Yeah. You don't want to bite off more than you can chew. Yeah. Right. Or like, uh, no, for sure. And that's part of the reason the PhDs take so long, right? Yeah. It's like, uh, you really don't know the difficulty of what you're doing. You also waste a lot of time. I've wasted a lot of time, you know, like, uh, sometimes doing things that it wasn't really needed to do in the big picture, right? Like maybe focus on details too much. Yeah. Um, but you know, okay. So doing this, doing a PhD, you can do it because you want to be a professor, but there are other reasons to pr- pursue a PhD that are not just that. Yeah. And I think like, um, so on the one hand, you really do improve your analytical skills, especially in STEM. I think there's no denying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because when you're, when you're trying to do that, like do something that no one else has ever done before, you typically have to operate at a pretty high level technically, right? Like you need to master uh, certain physics or you need to master certain experimental techniques. Like you need to know a lot about them to yeah. advance the field, right? Yeah. So you're definitely getting stronger in that sense. Um, and then you also learn presentation skills. And I think that you can learn presentation skills at a job also. But a PhD involves a lot of writing, actually, a lot more than people think, and a lot of preparation of figures, which, um, so figure is just like a cartoon, you know, like you have cartoons in your science textbooks, right? Uh, Doing that is also a form of writing, and you have to learn how to do that, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Otherwise, no one will understand (laughs) what you do, and then you don't get recognized for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes back actually to what we were talking about at the start about like content versus presentation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you do a PhD, I think you will improve both of those skills. And I'm, even though I'm not pursuing the professor job, I don't regret at all pursuing the PhD. I've had a, I have no regrets really about that. Uh, yeah. I'm very happy with where I am today. I like who I have become after the PhD as well. I think I've changed for the better. Yeah, I guess I was I was going to ask that question, but since you already answered, um, you don't regret it. Let's talk about uh, at one point, did you decide you didn't want to be a professor anymore? Um, or like, so that's like not staying in academia. And then mm-hmm. you you are now going to Bain & Company to become a consultant. So what mm-hmm. made you decide to become a consultant? How did you leverage your skills from a PhD in mechanical engineering to a consulting company? Yeah, so... I would say I I still want to be a professor actually. Oh okay. But okay. I want to do other things also. Okay. Uh, I want to do. That's how I think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's very likely I'll never be a professor in my life. Okay. <laughs> Just because there are other things I want to do. Yeah. I mean, or part of the reason is there are other things I want to do and maybe things I want to do more urgently. Yeah. Uh, is it easy to go from variety... go from consulting back uh, into professor? I think it's possible. Okay. I think uh, I'll talk about consulting in a little bit. Yeah. Um, Basically, what has happened in my life is like the past two years, I think I've kind of like refocused my energies uh, towards building a life and not just a career. Yeah. And about being happy and whatever. It's a very complicated process. Yeah. Um, I decided I think I I would be happiest uh, working in a company and doing research within a company. Mm-hmm. And for a variety of reasons. And if I want to do that, if I want to do research at a company, 
I would also like to be able to direct research. I would like to be able to choose the topics that we research at our company or to have people that I can advise in certain research projects. And I thought I can either do that by getting a job at a company in a research position at that company yeah. and working my way up until I'm a manager at one of these companies. Or the other way I could have done it is take a job in consulting and and for the, for those that don't know what consulting is, we can talk about it afterwards. But when you work as a consultant, as a management consultant, what happens is in, a, in about two or three years, uh, you learn a lot about management techniques and about business and about communication skills. And after those two or three years, you actually are very likely to, you can do a lot of things and you're actually very likely to be able to then get that management job in a research division of a company. Does that make sense? I, I yeah. think of it kind of as a shortcut to my goals. Yeah, yeah. And and that's and that's that's basically it. Yeah. I've thought uh, about mm-hmm. that, but so maybe you can um maybe you can mm-hmm. use this opportunity to fill in like what is the consultant, but also mm-hmm. how how do you manage so you're you're going from something that was very technical, right, to mm-hmm. something so I would say maybe this is not a good term to use, but I would say going from like the hard skills to the soft skills. Is that true? Yeah, right. And now you yeah, and then I, you want to go into managing a team, a scientific team. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So are you worried that you're suddenly someone who has all these soft skills? You know, are you worried that you're managing people who have who has more technical skills than you and you're there's a big disconnect and they're like, yeah. What does he think he knows telling us? You know, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's no, a huge, uh, it's a huge problem. It's a, definitely something to think about. Um, I'll say this: uh, most of the C-level executives at uh, at most major companies, even tech companies, even yeah. soft uh, tech companies, uh, engineering companies, software companies, bio companies, most of them do not have PhDs. Yeah, right. Most of them got to where they are with soft skills. Yeah. And I just say that to like, kind of like don't underestimate the importance of soft skills, which I think is something I've done in my life a lot. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something to think about. I mean, you cannot just have soft skills. Of course you yeah. need the hard skills. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's good to have both. And the other way I thought about consulting is like the way I was thinking about, I'm not a microfluidics researcher. Yeah. I'm, I'm just because I'm doing it right now. I'm not a researcher just because I'm doing it right now. You know, uh, I'm yeah. a more complex human being and I want to do something that's not uh, research for a little bit you yeah. know, also to feel that. Uh, but for those who don't know what management consulting is, that's the kind of consulting that we're talking about. It's called management consulting. It's basically like a hired brain. Think of it that way. Like companies, sometimes they have problems that they just don't know how to solve. Uh, like, for example, uh, GE, General Electric, uh, in the 80s, 90s, they had all of these like divisions. They developed aircraft engines. They developed washing machines, refrigerators, all of these other things. And they saw that some of their sectors of business were making a lot of money and some were losing a lot of money. And just because of the nature of their job, they, d- they weren't sure what to do. Like, should I cut these parts of the company that are not making money? Should I invest more in those parts of the company? And sometimes you just want to hire someone from outside to look at your company for about three months and give, make your recommendation. 
And that's what, that's what a consultant does. And they do this with many different companies. So you get to see a lot of different things. That's how uh, I thought about it. With, that was a really big motivator for me. I see. And how did you mm-hmm. use your skills as a mechanical engineer to... How did you leverage those skills? Or like, what were the transferable you, skills for a consulting company very, to hire you? Mostly the communication skills. I, I think that's like the most direct uh, skill. Yeah. You need analytical skills. Uh, you need to be quick on your feet. So like one thing that they talk about in the interviews... They ask you to think uh, mathematically. Like, so for example, if if someone says something like, oh, you know, like five out of 20 of our, or let's say, uh, let's say six out of 20 of our products are selling really well, you need to be able to think like, oh, so about 25% of our things are selling well. You know, I mean, that's a very dumb yeah. example, I think. But the point is like to spot trends, be yeah. able to do quick calculations really fast. Okay. That's very valuable. So, so the idea um, is like, uh, so are this is this skill set sort of like seeing some problem, transferring it into math, you know, or, 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 then, yeah, or vice yeah, versa, right. transferring your math, transferring some math and like communicating it well. Back. Yeah. Is that it? Uh, yeah. Okay. And actually, I think one of the most important skills of any researcher in any field is yeah. the ability to dumb problems down. Because things are just so complex, you you would never be able to model, right, the entire interaction of a protein binding to another protein, right? But if you have a very simple model that describes it well, that's very valuable. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's wrap it up with the uh, the last two things. Can you tell us what are some like interesting books recently that you would recommend, and why? Yeah. Um, how to Win Friends and Influence People. Have you heard of this book? No, I haven't. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty old book. I think it's actually like 80 years old or something. It's written by a guy named Dale Carnegie. Okay. Uh, it's a very uh, interesting look at like engineering uh, social interactions. I highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, another book I recommend is called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. It's about um, the current state of the internet and how much information is being gathered around us. It's just, it's very interesting, uh, yeah. the world that uh, we live in. And uh, those, those two, I think the, those two are, are, were fun read. I read this other one. It was like, it, it was just a pretty fun uh, book. It was called uh, Salt, Sugar, Fat. Uh, yeah, by... I've heard of this one. <laughs> Yeah, I I, what's the guy's name? It's Michael Moss, I think, is the author. Okay, it, it's just, it's a really fun story. I mean, uh, it's about like the processed food industry, uh, okay. like you know, like cereal and candy bars and stuff like that. Yeah, it was it was pretty fun read. Okay, okay, nice. That that uh surveillance one sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, what was the key? What did what did you change? How did did you change any of your actions based on reading it? Uh, I. I am now very averse to creating online accounts. You know, like five years ago, like if I have to download a document yeah. and it, it asked me to create an account, yeah. I, I would have just created the account, you know, given my email, given my phone number, my name, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really try to avoid it now. Like, for example, you sent me that Dropbox link. Yeah. I had to create an account. Oh, okay. I had a Dropbox account. Yeah. I actually deleted it. I, I try to delete as much... Uh, of my online presence as possible. I have no social media. Um, just like, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I think what was most eye opening is crazy. How profitable our information is actually. 
interesting. I think that's going to be a big thing, uh, like privacy rights. And like, I think eventually people will think of Facebook as like a uh, cigarette companies back in the nineties or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. To be regulated. Interesting. Yeah. I definitely mm-hmm. want to check that out. Um, okay. So last and like final question, what advice yeah. would you give Diego 10 years ago? Uh, take all of your money and put it in Bitcoin. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, And then number two, (laughs) uh, take it out in January of 2021. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to hold on, hold on for their life. Is that it? (laughs) Yeah, no, maybe. (laughs) No, uh, uh, Advice. Okay. So the number one is to take more like one-off classes. Like I was saying earlier, yeah. like what, while I was at MIT, I should have taken like one class in bioengineering, another class in computer science. I mean, these are just topics that are interesting to me. Right. Yeah. Uh, and just other, other topics instead of taking so many classes in design. Um, and then also I wish I would have done more research as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. I would have, I wish I would have taken it more seriously uh, because I, I was not able to learn really what it meant to do research until I was like, well at Stanford, like two years, three years, you know, even. Yeah. Um, so both of those things, I think also the other thing I regret about, uh, Boston and my time here at Stanford about MIT and my time here at Stanford is I wish I would have seen more, uh, things, uh, you know, like leave Boston more often, you know, and see other parts of Massachusetts, you know, like the natural parks near there, yeah. go to different towns, you know, like, yeah. like for I only ever went to uh, Rhode Island like once or something like that. Uh, you know, just like these places I haven't been, you know, now I'm in California and, you know, the national parks out here is incredible. And I've definitely gone to some, you know, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wish I would have done more, you know? Yeah, same. Okay, so... Yeah, I think that's it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope you got enough material, dude. I hope it wasn't too bad. No, no, no. Yeah, thanks thanks for being agreeing to be on this podcast. I I think it's yeah, super course, valuable. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be excited to hear what you had to say. Yeah. 